Today, Londoners have woken up to a very different city. Over half of America is on lockdown. As many of us must stay at home as possible. Hello, and welcome back to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from Said Business School at the University of Oxford. I'm Peter Tufano, the Dean here at Oxford Said, and your host. This podcast is based on a series of live events that we've been running since the COVID-19 outbreak debating the challenges reshaping business and society in this new era. It's a hub of both the latest academic research from our faculty and insights from business leaders at the front in these extraordinary times. When you've finished listening to this, take a moment to browse through our growing archive of past episodes. We're leaving no business stone unturned. Coming up in this episode, we'll be asking, how can business redefine its role in the wake of COVID-19 and be a force for good for society and for the planet? Episode 8, Doing Now What the World Needs Next. I want to take a moment to reflect on the themes of leadership and justice. We're talking about the role of business and society, and a big part of that is to worry about various stakeholders, shareholders, consumers, employees, the next generation. And as we're called to worry about these different stakeholders, we have to worry about how we trade off their interests, how we administer fairness. But the administration of fairness is actually the word justice. And as Martin Luther King reminded us, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So while we're focused on the pandemic, the economic crisis, the civil liberties issues that are raised, we stand in solidarity with those who face ongoing systemic discrimination. And so on to COVID-19. The virus is more than a public health crisis. It's a deeper crisis in the way that business and economies work. When it comes to the international healthcare system, what is the role of global healthcare companies and the responsibility of business? Today, we travel to Switzerland to hear from Andre Hoffman, the vice chair of one of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies, Roche. Roche was founded in 1896 in Basel by Andre's great-grandfather, Fritz Hoffman LaRoche, then a pioneering 28-year-old entrepreneur During its nearly 125-year history, Roche has aimed at targeting treatments for cancer, developing new personalized healthcare solutions, new diagnostic technologies, and recently the first commercial diagnostic test for COVID-19. Andre is recognized as one of the world's leaders in the field of corporate sustainability. He's a tireless and eloquent advocate of conservation and biodiversity, working with the World Wildlife Foundation, which was co-founded by his father. To quote him, We cannot sustain life or do business on a dead planet. Andre is an active leader among owners of large global family firms. He works with the World Economic Forum, as well as sitting on the Family Advisory Council of the Ownership Project here at Oxford Said. This project aims at understanding and improving the role of responsible owners. Andre is a truly inspiring leader who's pushing for a radical rethink of the role of business, especially when it comes to understanding business's role in society. The idea of being in business just to make money, he says, is no longer relevant. In this episode, you'll hear me in conversation with Andre, along with my Oxford Said colleague, Dr. Mary Johnson-Louis, a senior research fellow here and co-director of the Oxford Program on Responsible Ownership. We're going to start with the Roche business and its purpose statement, doing what patients need next. Here's Andre Hoffman, 
with some context for the firm's work and its role addressing the global health issues created by COVID-19. I think it's important that we sort of define um, uh, what a business is and what the purpose of a business is. Uh, we've been taking very seriously this notion of uh, being in business for life. Our aim, our, our, our purpose is the patient. And that's something we've taken very seriously since the beginning of this COVID crisis, but also, of course, for the 123 years that we had before that. Um, the, the, the purpose of a company is what drives its activities and is what drives its um, its impact on the on, on the system around it. The idea of uh, being in business just to make money is an idea that I think has uh, served its purpose, but is no longer relevant today. If you want to be an enduring company, you need to be able to think long term. Now, <clears throat> long term does not just only mean finding a niche that you can occupy forever, because nothing like this really exists. But it is a um, it, it is an opportunity to repurpose your business uh, on a specific target on an ongoing basis. Our business is the health of our patient and therefore a pandemic like the one we're living at the moment is an opportunity for us to deploy our intellectual and, and, and financial capacity to be able to service that crisis and that's what we have we've been trying to do. For those of you who are following the pharmaceutical market, um, our company is not involved in vaccines. This is a business we don't really practice and therefore do not have any particular competence in. But we are very active in, in testing. We are the, the largest um, uh, in vitro, in vitro um, diagnostic company on, on in the world. And we also have done over the years quite a lot of work on antiviral drugs, in particular during the HIV uh, epidemic some years ago. But before we go into what's the, the, the notion of what Roche has done um, uh, in particular, I'd like to just make a, a general comment. Um, we are we, the humans, have been 10,000 years on this planet. We've been trying to take an awful lot of time creating systems and ways of uh, exchanging with nature, which have allowed us to take over the dominant role. Today, um, uh, some very serious people talk about the current age as being the Anthropocene, in other words, the, world, the, the, the age where humanity runs the planet. So we consider ourselves as the most sophisticated system the world has ever seen, and we manage and, and, and live according to this. And then suddenly, one of the most primitive organisms on the planet, some, uh, uh, a virus, which is just a little strand of RNA with five genes, not, not, not as much as five genes, comes and our whole civilization collapses. We've been closed down for three months because of a, a very predictable uh, problem, which has suddenly hit us very hard. Now, um, when I say predictable, uh, 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 we had a couple of uh, attempts at pandemics before, which luckily, for biological reasons, did not persevere. But the one we are living at the moment is something that has succeeded in jumping zoonosis, jumping from uh, animals to humans, and developing really quickly in our very open society. We've created an avenue for that, for, for that virus, and that virus has taken a chance of it, taking, uh, um, uh, has taken this as an opportunity. Now, um, I, I, I don't want this to be interpreted as me saying that we should be a segmented society, certainly not, and we can come back to that later. But, but um, what's important is to realize that the zoonosis on that scale can only be possible because of the model of development that we humans have chosen. We have, over the last um, uh, generations, uh, 
focus much more on short-term uh, satisfaction, short-term uh, efficacy, short-term efficiency, perhaps even short-term profit optimization, compared to the long-term, which is the real the base of a resilient system. Today, we, are, we get to the point where we have compromised the long-term for the short-term. And to come back to your question about Roche, I think that's the fact that we have been in existence for 125 years and that the fact that we've been able to go for a couple of health crises successfully demonstrate that we are on an ongoing basis trying to take decisions which take into account this trade-off between long-term and short-term. Um, you cannot really create resilience, you cannot really create a system that is stable if you only look at the, near, at the short term future. And in corporations, in businesses, that means short term profit maximization. So, you know, you cannot only use financial as a way of measuring success. But I hope we will be able to come back to that later. Great. Let's take on the short term versus long term. Um, so when COVID hit, I'm sure this was not the agenda that you thought you were going to be facing in the first couple of quarters of 2020. Um, and you had to, I'm sure, pivot the firm somehow and make some decisions where there were some trade-offs involved, probably that had short-term consequences. How did you think about, you know, moving in order to combat using your tests? Um, and then what trade-offs did you face and, and how did you deal with that as an organization? We have to look a bit at the calendar. Um, end of last year, January this year, suddenly these noises come from, from, from China. There is a disease there which is going quickly. Uh, the Chinese government very quickly, uh, with the help of the local CDC, um, uh, by the way, run by an Oxford graduate, so you know, quite close to, to what it is uh, uh, you are doing, uh, publishes the genetic code of the virus and, and describes it properly. Our scientists get to work and identify a, a, a PCR test, that, that is a, a viral test, which will identify the presence of the virus in the body. Uh, it, it took us two months to prepare this, and it, it, it has been on sale since mid-March. Um, we operate mostly uh, with um, robots which are in, in place in, in big uh, hospitals, so we have a, a high throughput capacity. We can run a lot of these tests once the reagent that is needed for that test is identified. So this comes to the market in mid-March and it starts being produced. You have to realize that this is based on a, on a technology called PCR, polymerase chain reaction, and that PCR technology is practiced by every biotech company on the planet. It's the base of, a, of, of, a, of, biotech, of the modern biotechnology. You take a little strand, a very small fraction of DNA, put this technology, you uh, multiply it to the point where you can actually uh, use it to, um, uh, to be tested, so you have enough quantity for doing that. So there is an awful lot of what we call in the business home brews, I mean people who can do that at home, and a lot of the tests that were done uh, at the beginning were done on a sort of ad hoc basis, I mean they were perfectly uh, able to determine the, 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 the viral load, but the, uh, our test works on robots like a couple of other companies and that allows us to um, I, would, I was going to say industrialize it, but I mean automate it and, and, and relieve the, the pressure on hospitals in, 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 on, on lab hospitals. Now, the next step of this was, of course, there you identify somebody who has the virus, but you don't really measure the antibodies' presence in the body. And um, we, we've decided, uh, so we, decided, we started from the beginning onwards to try to measure a test which would give us the level of antibodies in 
the body. And we have now um, uh, developed a, a blood-based test, a seriology test, serum-based test, which provides us with a reading of uh, if there are antibodies present in the, in, in, the, in the body or not. And this test has to look at two aspects. It has to look at the specificity. Is it the real virus we're testing? And is it also accurate into measuring the, 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 uh, the load? And um, uh, I'm glad to say that our test um, measures 100% of the right antibody and 99.8% of the specificity of the antibody. So we are, and um, this is one of the reasons why we're not among the first, but we are at the moment among the most precise tests on the market. Not only that, but because they're automated, we can produce up to 100 million of these tests a month, and we are ramping up capacity to be able to do more than that. Now, 100 million a month for 7 billion inhabitants is a little bit small, but again, we, we can come back to that later. So on the, on the, on the front of, uh, of, of testing, I think we have a, a, a portfolio which allows us to answer most of the questions that um, uh, humanity is facing. The WHO has recommended that what we should be doing with these tests is to identify, isolate, treat, and, and um, uh, separate the communities who have these tests. So we, we need to be able to test them in great quantities in order to be able to identify where the disease is. Now, uh, we would like to restart the economy, and that's again something we can discuss separately, but we want to restart the economy. In order to do that, we need to make sure that we release in the, the, the field only people who are less at risk than others. Mm -hmm. And these tests would allow us to measure that. There's one big question mark, which has not been answered yet, is how long do you have immunity after having been infected? It's a bit early to say. The, the, the disease has only been described since the beginning of the year. So it will take a while before we know if this immunity is something that will hold. But um, I think that given the history of other coronaviruses, I think that's quite likely that we would have at least a year, if not two, of immunity. Yeah. So Andre, you had said that you, know, you had this tremendous testing capability of 100 million tests in a world that needed 7 billion. And actually more than 7 billion because you know many of us are going to have to be tested on a weekly or kind of semi-weekly basis. And as we know, at the beginning of this, uh, the UK said that they were going to have 100,000 tests a day, and they had a trouble getting up to that, and the US said even more. And there was a lot of competition for testing. How do you as a firm think about where you direct your tests, or given that supply that you have, that precious supply that you have, you know, in a world of nationalization of, uh, of testing or nationalization of, of cures? You know, how do you think about that as a firm based in Switzerland? That immediately becomes the, the nexus. How do we make sure that the people who need it get it at the right time? In an ideally working system, the WHO should be able to give us some indication on how to do that. And um, we have been in frequent contact with them. We're in, we're in partnership with uh, government, we, with health systems, and with the WHO. And we have um, uh, created systems which allow us to allocate these resources to the best possible one. But to the best possible users, sorry. Because as I said before, these are run on robots, and these robots need to be present. If I if I sell, I don't know, a, a test to a country which doesn't have the robot, um, then the test will just sit in a warehouse doing nothing, and that's of course nobody's interest. So there has to be an understanding of what the marketplace is, and at the same time, there also has to be a, an understanding of who needs it most. And, and um, uh, at the moment, we have been left um, on a number of occasions to make our own decisions, and in a system which, uh, as, as a non-executive in a system that I would like to see, is a, is a system where 
society would be sufficiently organized to be able to allocate these tests on the right basis rather than just having uh, uh, doing it ourselves. Now, why do we have to do it? Because governments, um, and that's the second crisis we're living, we're not only living a, a crisis of, of, uh, of diseases, we're also living a, crisis, a political crisis where the borders have shut and where people defend their own interests. And um, uh, people are very willing to hold these tests without having people who need them as much as they do use them. And, and, and that strikes me as being um, uh, a real issue which can only be settled by international corporations. We are in this together. The virus doesn't know any borders. The idea that um, a certain country will have more tests than others is quite a worrying fact because we know that means that when the vaccine will come, and the vaccine will eventually come, the same principles are going to apply. Some people are going to be more equal than others, and that's something we need to fight. As a, as a test manufacturer, we are in daily conversation on this. I imagine that the dozen of companies currently experimenting with vaccines will have the same sort of conversation, so we should learn from this. We're going to pivot a little bit now to talk about another global issue that Andre Hoffman and his family have been very passionate about, the protection of nature and biodiversity loss, as well as issues around climate change. My colleague, Mary Johnston-Louis, picks this up. Can you tell us about your journey to having a sense of passion and commitment for those particular issues? And then tell us how that links to another point of passion for you, which is business as a force for good. Protecting nature is not a question of passion, it's a question of absolute necessity. Nature is our life support system on earth. If, if, if nature becomes dysfunctional, well, you get exactly what we have now. The reason we are invaded by a, by a virus is because we haven't looked after nature in the proper manner. The distanciation, the, the, the respect, the, the, the trust, and perhaps also the, the, the relationship of humility with nature has disappeared. We're convinced that we are more important than nature, and uh, that, al that allows a couple of gates, or a couple of windows in which things can invade. So as um, uh, the WHO, uh, the, the European Union, and a couple of other bodies have said, this is a man-made epidemic, and we should, not, we, should not, uh, we should not hide ourselves from that. So the reason my father before me and, and, and all the rest have, have a supported nature is not because we believe that it is a beautiful thing to have, which it is, by the way, uh, you know, that, that, that uh, animals are lovely and that uh, forests are wonderful places where resource themselves. It's because it is indispensable to human life. Human life will not survive long in a dysfunctional nature. And, and um, uh, I don't want to sound sort of a righteous and I don't want to sound like um, if you know nature is taking revenge or something stupid like this uh, it, it's just that we need to find a balance a, a, an equilibrium and if you want to have resilient society nature needs to function properly so the, the rebuild we're going to do after this virus will need to introduce a couple of nature-based solutions and um, uh, the WHO has mentioned that beautifully a couple of days ago in its, in its latest statement. Um, the European Union and its Green Deal is talking about this. We, we see more and more this notion that it is better to uh, cooperate rather than dominate. Um, I, I spent quite a lot of time in, in, my, in, in my life until now protecting wetlands. Uh, you know, wetlands are... I grew up in the wetlands. I grew up in the south of France in the Camargue. Wetlands are, are smelly, uh, they're, they're, they're unproductive according to our definition of productivity, but they do play an important role into the water cycle, uh, in particular in terms of uh, climate change. In times of climate change, they purify water. I mean, traditionally in the Mediterranean, I know a couple of examples like this, you go to a wetlands, you dry it, 
you, you grow rice for a couple of years and then the, 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 the land productivity declines and you replace the capacity of this wetland by creating a recycling uh, factory on the, the next door, which is going to recycle the water, a, a treatment plant, which is going to be expensive and needs, uh, man needs maintenance and is less efficient than a perfectly healthy wetland. So I think there's a lot to be done in that direction. And um, I'm glad to say that that particular message is coming through. So it's not passion, it's reason. And I think it's important to say. But it doesn't mean that you cannot be passionately reasonable, of course. That's very helpful. And if you could link that in terms of your own commitment to the concept of business as a force for good, what does that concept mean to you? And how does nature play into that? So, so coming back in this notion of um, uh, wanting to protect nature, um, our family foundation, which exists since more than 30 years, has spent a lot of time identifying areas which need to be protected. Um, uh, we've also done quite a lot of work in biodiversity, trying to protect species. And then you have to ask yourself the question, well, you know, we came here and we did that protection plan for that particular area. We created some measures to make sure that this particular species does not disappear. How come that year after year, we have to come back to do something about it? How come that the pressure on natural resources and the pressure on natural habitats is not declining? And so we started thinking, you know, what is it that, um, that, that is this engine which constantly drives us forward to try to use nature in, in a more systematic manner? And the answer has to be business. Uh, the way we practice business is short-term profit maximization. It's the, the Milton Friedman doctrine of the Chicago um, School of Economics of the late 70s. The business of business is business. Now, when I say that, it's not criticism, it's, it's just analysis. Yeah? We've been taught at business school, and I went to business school as well, of course. We, we've been taught at business school that uh, the function of a company is to produce uh, wealth, is to produce value, and that value is then paid back to society for taxes, for salaries, for livelihoods, for dividends, I mean, for share prices. And all this is then used by societies to deal with the externalities that were, or, or, or if you want, were the collateral damages that were created in the value creation business. In other words, let me make money and then you deal with the consequences. And, and that I'm afraid is simply absurd. Mm. It doesn't matter how you spend the money. It's, it's, it's how you make it that matters. You know, if, if you can create a sustainable long-term thinking model, which will distribute wealth to employees, stakeholders, and, and societies in which we operate, we don't need to go for this compensation mechanism. So for me, business as a force for good is when we identify businesses who can have an impact on society, which is broadly, which is net positive. We, we, we should bring to the system more than we take out. And that's a key for a, a long-term sustainable future, sustainable existence. And it's also a way of making sure that society will support us because in many ways, um, uh, businesses have had a crisis of confidence, of trust. People tend to not, uh, to not support businesses because they've seen us in the past behaving according to this mantra. And a lot of people are starting to realize that what's important is not just the owner, but also the stakeholders. And I think that brings us into a, different, into a different sort of conversation. And that's what I mean when I talk about business as a force for good. We need to ensure that the new leadership will uh, do something for the system rather than just for the company.
Thank you, Andre. And that's the perspective you bring as a contributor to our <clears throat> program on responsible ownership, which we have, which is, has a specific focus on family companies. So I wanted you to just speak for a moment about what does responsible ownership mean to you? And more specifically, how do we move from rhetoric to action on responsible ownership, speaking as an owner yourself? Well, um, I, I, I have the weakness to believe that um, uh, businesses which are owned by long-term thinking uh, owners, I mean, and with that I mean probably families, although it could be also some reference holder, have a, a, a different perspective on reality. Um, in our business, um, we are very lucky to be a sort of hybrid business. We are quoted on a stock exchange and have, we have a number of people who hold our papers. And on the other hand, you have the family which has long-term control. And um, uh, so for us, we need to navigate this, this trade-off we were speaking about earlier on. We need to make sure that we satisfy uh, short-term interests without compromising the long-term. What we really want to make sure is that in the next generation, 20, 30, 40 years ago from now, um, and I hope to live for a very long time, so the, the, the later the better, <laughs> we will be able to, to give our, the next generation an opportunity to behave as owners in a responsible manner. Now, what that means is that you need to use uh, uh, resources and strengths and talents and individuality within the company towards serving the purpose of the company and not just about satisfying the shareholder. Mm. So we're not in this for an, augment, for an increase in dividend, we're this for the long term and for serving the patient. And um, um, I, I cannot think of a better way of explaining that than this notion of putting a purpose in the middle. And in the health company like Osh, it's easy. It's, it, it has to be the patient, because um, uh, you know, last year more than 100 million people took our drugs. They were not all um, cured, but a lot of them were, and um, that's an intense satisfaction, which is can be measured in uh, a lot of different things, not necessarily in money. Um, for, for me, the, the um, we tend to measure the performance of companies, and in particular um, for owners, uh, only based on financial uh, levels. And there are other capitals we need to talk about as well. We need to talk about natural capital, what impact are we having on the environment? We need to talk about social capital, you know, what, 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 is, what, what does our action um, have as a consequence and on the social system in which we are active? We need to talk about human capital, you know, talent. It's quite important to make sure that the talent you have um, uh, joins you for the right reasons and stays for the right reason. And that I'm afraid to say to all the employees, of course, that doesn't mean increasing the salary every year. You know, it's, it's also a question of personal development. And, and I think we all understand that. And, and so uh, um, uh, we need to develop, and that's for business in general, not just for us, we need to develop a new metric, which will allow us to measure success of a company, not just based on financial return, but also on impact, environmental and social. I want to go a bit deeper into this and Andre's theory of change. Like other leaders that we featured in the series, such as Paul Pullman, who was the CEO of Unilever and now the chair of the Oxford Said Board, and investment manager Hiro Mizuno, who ran the world's largest pension plan. Andre Hoffman is an exemplar. So how does he think we can elevate other firms to Erosius? Is it about metrics? Is it about boards, about consumers? Where are the levers in society to move us forward here? The COVID crisis is one of these cracks moment. We have discovered that our systems are not resilient. As I was saying a couple of minutes ago, um, we've collapsed in front of adversity. 
and uh, a system that is not uh, able to weather adverse events is not a system fit for purpose. Now, when I say we should look at a uh, um, nature-based solution for the rebuild, the most important trade-off is the one we were discussing before, the trade-off between long-term and short-term. Uh, you cannot go on just in short-term profit maximization if you want to run these large, um, incredibly impactful companies on the planet. We need to find a new metric. It strikes me that um, uh, capital accounting, accounting on natural, social, human, and environmental and, and, and financial capital, so is important. And um, uh, just because we need to be able to compare. Now, uh, over the last couple of years, we've seen more and more of an emergence of this, of this uh, thinking that stakeholder matters, that companies should state their purpose. Um, so we are broadening the field, but there's still some work to be done there. And I think that that's, um, that's where we can have the biggest influence. The financial industry, and particularly the investment industry, is where a lot of this will happen. When you are managing somebody else's fund, you have a fiduciary duty to maximize that particular value. Uh, as long as we collectively do not recognize that maximizing value means long-term value creation, uh, it's going to be difficult for financial professionals. But there again, I, I feel reasonably hopeful that there are new ideas coming forward. You, you see that with your students at Said. I see that with the, 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 the students at INSEAD, in, in particular in the work we do with the Global Institute for Business and Society. I mean, uh, there, there is a realization among the younger generation that um, just making money is not going to be enough. Because you, can, you are not going to be able to mobilize these funds in, in, a, in a useful manner going forward. I wish I could give you a, an immediate example. I mean, uh, we were talking about nature-based solution, the restoration of um, mangroves uh, outside of Miami, for instance. Miami was disappearing in the water. And um, now that the local university has pushed the restoration of mangrove, there is a system which allows a better flood movement control. And that could be an example. But there are a number of others, of course. So let's... The beginning of your answer, you said that COVID, this crisis that we've uh, experienced, it kind of convinces us all that the world is broken. Um, but there's two reactions to that. One is the hopeful reaction that you've outlined, but we also see if, you know, and we don't have to look at too far in the news to understand how political forces can use these, the same crisis for less positive outcomes. How do we make sure that, you know, this doesn't tip us into a more negative place as opposed to a more positive place? So um, one of the toolbox that we have given ourselves to manage the future is the Sustainability Development Goals, uh, the United Nations negotiation in between business, um, NGOs, and, and the United Nations for the Agenda 2030 for where we want to take the, the, the planet collectively. And SDG number one is ending poverty. And of course, that particular crisis has created more poverty and will create more poverty. So the idea of, of uh, the, this knee-jerk reaction and saying it is now imp uh, absolutely crucial that we liberate business to just go on creating value because we need that value. And that's worked very well in the previous cycle. The, 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 the Millennium Goals did raise about 800, 800 million sorry, people out of poverty. So it's just the collateral damages that we want to manage now at the same time as we, man as we manage the, the value creation. So we, we need to be very... Uh, 
careful and mindful of this. There, there is a, the traditional opportunity would be to say, well, now let's get business go loose, entrepreneurial forces unleash themselves, and they will create the value we need. But we know that that is at the cost of the environment, which we can probably not keep under control. The Paris Agreement did not happen just because people wanted it. It happened because there was a realization that we are uh, eroding the, the well-being on Earth at, at, at a rate higher than what we can restore it. So um, I, I saw with great interest that the European Union has created this Green New Deal, where it starts by saying 50% of the value of business is, is uh, predicated on nature. I would argue 100% is because you know if you don't have if you don't have the, the system around you you, know, you 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 would probably not be able to do any of the things we are doing in that context. So uh, we are going to need to stand firm on that particular ground. And the great tool we have, and it pains me to say that as an advocate for 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 business as a force for good, the great tools we have is that a lot of the of the decisions which are going to be taken in the next half a decade, uh, is going to be in the hands of governments, because governments have stepped up and refinanced the economy on a massive scale. Mm -hmm. you know, we, we, um, the, the true owners of, of uh, the, the value creation uh, business now are no longer businesses for a couple of years until they can earn themselves out of this. It's, it's, it, you know, it's regulators, it's international organizations, it's the IMF, it's governments, etc. And there, there is a, a, a mechanism that we should be really using, and that is this conditionality issue. Yeah? Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. Uh, the Swiss government has decided to bail out Swiss, uh, the airline company, has provided uh, 1.8 billion Swiss franc, which of course globally is of no significance, but for Swiss life or death, and has put up a conditionality saying, we want you to emit less CO2. This was then sent to the parliament, who removed the conditionality. To say no, we want we want Swiss to continue to produce um, jobs, and it's it's fifteen thousand jobs. It's, it's it's not negligible. But as long as we don't have the political courage to take this opportunity to really be serious about implementing measures which are going to help us to go towards the achievement of the Paris Agreement, as long as we are not really taking climate into account with this conditionality, we are missing an opportunity. And and I think it it should be a, a, the role of every leader here around us. To do this, the fact that so many health systems were unprepared for this pandemic, despite the repeated warnings, is a, is a crisis of leadership. So now it's time for leadership to emerge and to do something about how we're going to recreate all this. So what are the positive examples of leadership you're seeing right now? Use the term we a lot, which is great. You know, we are all on this together and in fact, it, it is about we, not about I. And you've talked about business and government and regulators and international organizations. And so as you look across the world right now, where do you see the positive examples of leadership that, that our young people could look to as examples? So I, I, as I said just before, I think we need to pivot away from just business leadership where, where um, we have some outstanding thinkers. You were mentioning Paul Pullman before. There are a couple of other of his successors in, in, in different activities. But they are now uh, a little bit on the, on the, on the back foot. So, so, so we need to go towards governments. And there in Europe, I must say that I find Mrs. Merkel quite remarkable. She, she's, she has made a couple of pronouncements which, which are really absolutely appropriate. Um, the, the, it's the fourth time I, I, I quote it, but the Green New Deal is, is something which is exactly hitting at a huge amount of unemployment. We're going to need to create new jobs, jobs in building up the green infrastructure, 
uh, you know, uh, fitting houses with, uh, with solar captors, uh, insulation, I mean, all, all the jobs you need for infrastructure um, are going to provide those in the short term, a little bit in the spirit of a Marshall Plan or a reconstruction plan. Um, so I see, I see leadership in some of the, of the politicians. I'm afraid I see very poor leadership in other politicians, but I don't think we, we want to start on this because that would take us very far. In terms of um, refinancing what is in front of us, we need decisive action. And I think the idea of furloughing the, star, uh, the most staff, etc., was a way of maintaining credibility in the system. But the real challenge is coming. Great. Maybe over to Mary for a few questions. As we think about the world that our MBA students are going into right now, the ones who are currently leaving this cohort, and also students who are thinking about a business education right now, what advice would you give to MBA students, Andre, who want to turn their degree into a positive impact? So, first of all, uh, leadership. We need leaders who are going to make a difference to this planet. And um, uh, working in industry and business general would have been, sorry, I don't want to, to be laying that point too quickly, but we need people who are going to run companies not based just on financial returns, but on the measurements of the different capitals. We need people taking decisions based on net contribution to society. It is perfectly um, normal that a, a pharmaceutical business should concentrate on its carbon footprint or should concentrate on to the quality of the water it restitutes to the system. It's not part of your mission, but it is part of your being as a company. You cannot be a business if you're not a net contributor. In the past, we could have said something along the lines of, oh, well, it doesn't matter if you make no impact. It doesn't matter as long as you do no evil. But today, that's over. We need to contribute because the situation has gone a little bit too far. We need to be net contributors. So we need new uh, leadership with a holistic approach to what the value creation business is in business. Now, we also need to realize that the solution will not come from business alone, but it will be a public-private partnership. Governments on their own will never succeed in reconstructing the mess in front of us. We need entrepreneurial drive, entrepreneurial uh, existence, uh, entrepreneurial motivations to change something. So we need to develop this new partnership between uh, business, uh, regulators and businesses. And it has to be uh, based on a mutual understanding of what is good for the system. So business as a force for good becomes uh, society as a force for good. We need together to do something. So I, I, would, I would suggest that uh, if I was talking to an MBA candidate, to make sure that they understand what the regulators do and how they work and how, what they represent, and not just concentrate onto the startup mentality of disruption and, uh, and you know, we need to rebuild now. And if you want to rebuild, you, you're going to have to, to change, you know, to be a little bit more conciliatory. My thanks to Andre Hoffman and to Mary Johnston-Louis. My name is Peter Tufano, and you've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from Said Business School at the University of Oxford. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about the series, visit OxfordAnswers.org. Until next time, thanks for listening.